You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Stevie Wonder released the very best album of his stellar career. It was a double album of 21 songs that took two and a half years and 130 people to complete. And shortly before recording this extraordinary album, Stevie was actually in a rough spot in his life and he was thinking about quitting music altogether. But Barry Gordy, the CEO of Motown Records, made him the deal of a lifetime. There was not a single artist at the time who received a deal like Stevie Wonder received. And so he started work on this project, which was temporarily given the title, Let's See Life the Way It Is. The final title of the album came to Stevie in a dream, and it would ultimately be called Songs in the Key of Life. For Stevie, this album was a personal challenge to expand his range as a songwriter and composer. And this is how he described it. Quote, I challenged myself to write as many different things as I could, to cover as many topics as I could, in dealing with the title and representing what it was about. If you listen through it with which... I don't know if you can continue as a member if you have not listened through (laughs) Songs in the Key of Life. This has got to move to the top of your list if you are a member of Grace Mosaic and you have not listened to this album yet. I have to use my spiritual authority to tell you to go listen to it ASAP. I jest. But if you listen to Songs in the Key of Life, what you will find is that this album has songs about love, a song about prayer, a song about ghetto poverty and injustice. Stevie wrote a song on this album that honors musicians of old and also songs filled with longing for bygone days. He wrote songs about loss and pain, but also the joyous birth of his first child. Isn't she lovely? I had to sing one real quick. All right. He wrote songs about racial unity. He wrote songs about beauty and the afterlife. Songs in the Key of Life speaks into the great diversity of human life, and this is one of the reasons why it's so enduringly celebrated as an album. Rolling Stone magazine captured the significance of this album by saying this, and I quote, four decades have failed to dull the album's power and awe-inspiring scope. It's been cited as a favorite by figures like Prince, Whitney Houston, Michael Jackson, Mariah Carey, and Stevie Wonder himself. If you don't know, Joel and I have this running back and forth where he fails to identify songs in the key of life as Stevie's greatest album. So I'm trying to help the brother come along, you know what I'm saying? And I wrote him this, and he's, I, I texted this quote to him, he, and he wrote back fake news. I was like, <laughs> you can't help everybody, y'all. You can't help everybody. In ancient Israel, King David, the sons of Korah, and other artists inspired by the Holy Spirit released their very best album of their careers. 
It was a massive collection of 150 psalms, a hymn book that served as a guide for the worship and formation of God's people. Now, there were many times along the story where they were tempted to give up. But in the Exodus, the Lord had made Israel the deal of a lifetime. And this resulted in a liturgical collection that helped God's people to see life the way it is under the sovereign lordship of Yahweh. And I think it's fair to say that you could offer the Psalter an alternative title. You could call the Psalter Songs in the Key of Life because the Psalter contains psalms about love, psalms about prayer, psalms about poverty and injustice. The psalmist wrote psalms on this album that honored the saints of old and also psalms filled with longing for bygone days. They wrote lament psalms to express their sense of loss and pain, but also joyous psalms of praise to the Lord for his redemption. They wrote psalms about unity and diversity, about beauty and the renewed world to come. The Psalter speaks into the great diversity of human life, all of the different scenarios and situations and problems and highs and lows, the stars and the scars that we experience in this life. The Psalter speaks into all of that diversity, and this is one of the reasons why the Psalter has been such an enduringly celebrated album of God's people. And to echo what the Rolling Stones said about songs in the key of life, Thousands and thousands of years have failed to dull the album's power and awe-inspiring scope as saints around the globe and through the ages have turned to its pages in the various circumstances of their lives. So this summer, we are going to work through a series in the Psalter called Songs in the Key of Life, but it's just volume one. And we will get various volumes in the future, we're, we're probably going to start a rhythm of preaching psalms in the summer. But this summer, we're going to work through some of the, the psalms that, that represent these various scenarios and experiences of life. And our goal in this series is to help you to develop a more healthy and well-rounded spirituality. What I mean is this. We're going to learn through the Psalter how to praise how to lament, how to long, how to worship, how to relate to enemies, how to relate to friends. We're going to learn what life looks like in God's community. All of this diversity of human life is going to be engaged through our time in the Psalter. And so today we begin with Psalm 1, and we're going to approach this text through two points, where we see a key practice of righteousness and a key result of righteousness. Those are our two points today in Psalm 1. A key practice of righteousness and a key result of righteousness. So let's look at our first point where we see a key practice of righteousness. Now, the way in which a book starts often sets the tone for the rest that is to follow in the book. And it's no different for the Psalter. You'll notice in this wisdom psalm, Two contrasting pictures. You see a picture of the blessed life of the righteous 
that is rooted, fruitful, resilient, and prosperous. And that is juxtaposed, that is contrasted with the fruitless, ephemeral life of the wicked that has no substance. But what's important to note is this. At the very beginning of the very first psalm in the Psalter is this portrayal of the blessed life of righteousness that is rooted, fruitful, resilient, and prosperous. And we see that the key to this life is meditation. Meditation. Take a look at verses 1 through 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. We can see here that meditation has a proper focus in this text. And that focus of meditation is the law of the Lord. Torah Adonai, the, the law of the Lord. Law is the English translation of the Hebrew word Torah. Somebody say Torah. Torah was, in the, in the Hebrew language, really at its most basic level, Torah means instruction. Law has often negative connotations for us in our culture. And we can be tempted to import those negative connotations back onto Torah, but it, it should not be that way. Torah was simply the Lord laying out the pathway of life, the pathway of righteousness, the pathway of glory. This is the proper focus. And Torah not only can be, you know, limited in its usage and, and specifically refer to, the, to the, the Ten Commandments, but it can also be used more broadly just to speak of all God's word. And I believe this is the sense in which the psalmist is using it. He's, he's saying, that we are called the blessed life of righteousness is characterized by meditation on all that God has said in his word. To develop this passage a little more and this idea of meditation a little bit more, I would say that meditation is sustained imaginative reflection in which we listen for God's voice in the scriptures with the intent to be formed, and to follow. I'll say that again. Meditation is sustained imaginative reflection in which we listen for God's voice in the scriptures with intent to be formed and to follow. Now this is important. An important idea that I want to offer to you because we have a lot of very gifted, educated, intellectually uh, powerful people in this room. Many of you have gotten PhDs. Many of you have gotten master, master's degrees. And there is a certain way that you learn to think and engage at that higher academic level. But it's important for you to understand this. Meditation is less like taking the mind of a scholar and more like taking the mind of a lover. There are two different ways of thinking. Thinking like a scholar is like logic chopping, and you can kind of do it in an objective and cold, coldly detached way. 
But when you take the mind of a lover, you find yourself reminiscing. Like when me and Vanessa first met, she just was, she just thought about me all the time. And it just brought her happiness. And sometimes she would just giggle with delight because of what she found. You can check with her for the real story later on. But you get what I'm saying. Lovers think in a different kind of mode from academics. Now, that is not to say that there isn't a place for academic engagement with scripture, right? There's a place to think deeply and richly and understand theology and, and, and biblical teaching. But meditation is about taking the mind of a lover. In Augustine's Confessions, he gives us a feel for what meditation sounds like, what it feels like. This is one of my favorite quotes from Augustine, African Church Father Augustine's Confessions. He says this. He says, late have I loved you, beauty so old and so new. Late have I loved you. You were with me, and I was not with you. The lovely things kept me far from you. Though if they did not have their existence in you, they had no existence at all. You called and cried out loud and shattered my deafness. You were radiant and resplendent. You put to flight my blindness. You were fragrant. And I drew in my breath and now pant after you. I tasted you and I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touched me and I am set on fire to attain the peace which is yours. That's what meditative reflection sounds like. Think about how meditation can get more detailed. There is a distinctly Christian way of engaging meditation. And it all goes back to, to Torah, which we can understand again as the word of God. But when we look at the word of God, we can see that scripture gives us warrant for all kinds of variations on this theme of meditation. For example, from the scriptures, we are told to meditate on the creation. I remember that there was a time where I would come into worship and be confused when we would sing songs like, How Great Thou Art. I'm like, why are we singing about nature or creation? Why are we singing about the trees and the mountains and all that? But the more I grew in understanding the scriptures, I would come to places like Psalm 19 that says the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth, his handiwork. God's fingerprints are all over the creation and the creation leads us to see the various attributes and glories of God. There is uh, an article that Vanessa and I had to read in seminary. And it was written by a pastor scholar who got his Ph.D. from Princeton. He was a Princetonian, brilliant man, academic. And he had these two friends, a husband and wife, who lived in the mountains. And he would go out to visit them. And he told in his article about this game that they used to play called the Great Penzatsky. And what this husband and wife couple would do is that they would try to catch one another. And the wife and the husband would be out in creation, and then she would say, 
the mountain. And he would say, ah, reminds me of the power and majesty of God. And then he would say to her, the cloud. And she would say, ah, reminds me of the purity of God and his holiness. And they would identify different items in creation for the other, and then the other would have to say what it made them think about with respect to the character and attributes of God or redemptive truths. And the writer of this article, this pastor scholar, said that at first it annoyed him. <laughs> he, would, he didn't want to play this little game, right? But then he, he, he had this key line in the article where he said, but it wasn't long before they entranced my vision and anywhere I looked, I couldn't help but see God. I love that idea because creation is brimming with its creator. Athanasius of Alexandria says that no part of creation is left void of him. He has filled all things everywhere. And Cyril of Jerusalem says, the wider our contemplation of creation, the grander is our conception of God. The abundance and the beauty of creation is not meant to be an end in of itself. When you taste a great glass of wine, it should take you to someone greater. When you see a majestic mountain, it should lead you to the majestic one of all eternity. When you see beauty, when you taste goodness, they're meant to be signposts. And it's silly to get caught up in the sign and to miss the destination. It's like jumping on 95 to go up to New York and the first green sign you see that says, a hundred miles to New York, you pull the car over and say, wow, look at that sign. No, the sign is there to get you to New York City, fool, right? That's what you would say to someone who pulled off on the side and got caught up with the sign. All of the creation is a signpost to the Lord. And that's why Paul could say, no matter what you do, do it all to the glory of God. Because he knew that the creation was rife with the potential for glorifying God. All right? We can meditate on the promises of God, chiefly his promise of being present with us, his promise to provide for us, and his promise that he not only has a plan for us individually, but he has a plan for us corporately. And when you're locked in on these promises, when you are meditating on these promises regularly, you will not live in the kind of fear and anxiety that so many people in our society are enduring. You won't worry about meeting the needs of people in your life because you know that you have a provider and he is never going to let you fall as you are giving yourself away for the benefit of others. He can do anything but fail. And when you know that he has a plan for your life, you can hold your plans loosely. You don't have to identify create an idol out of your plans and, and have a my way or the highway relationship to the people in your life. Meditate on the promises of God. Meditate on the Lord's attributes and character. You know, so much of the Christian life orbits around a foundational question in our hearts. Can God be trusted? 
Can I trust him? Does he have the kind of character that I can rely upon? And as you meditate on the character and the attributes of God, you will get back a resounding yes that will give freedom in your life. It will liberate you. It will delight you. It will bring joy into your life to know that you are in relationship with this promise-making, promise-keeping God who can be trusted. Meditate on the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each member of the Trinity is glorious and has done particular work in creation and redemption for which they deserve praise. Meditate on the triune God. Meditate on anticipated good from the Lord's hand. When you wake up in the morning, what are you anticipating from the Lord? Are you expecting that he's, he's going to be absent on that day? Are you expecting that that meeting that you have at 2 o'clock is going to be, uh, you just dreading it all morning? You let that dread impose upon your whole day, and it really stems from low expectations of God? Low expectations that Scripture gives you no warrant to hold. Scripture gives us every warrant to have high expectations about what God will do when we wake up every morning. The first sign is he actually woke you up. And if he woke you up, well, then what more must he have plans in your life? Plans to do you good. Plans to work through you. Plans to work for you. Plans to work on you. <laughs> Anticipate good from the Lord's hand. Rather than catastrophizing and expecting the worst. Meditate on the Lord's work, chiefly in Jesus Christ. Very much like that old hymn that says, were you there when they crucified my Lord? This is not just a theological question. It's a question of meditative awareness concerning the person and work of Christ. Meditate. Meditate on the Lord's rescue in particular stories of scripture, and in the lives of the saints over the ages. And here's why you should do that. Because it builds the confidence that if God could do it for them, he can do it for me. If he brought them up out of the pit, if he could sustain Job through trials and suffering and loss, he can sustain me. If he could make a missionary out of a man who was trying to kill Christians. If he could turn Saul into Paul, he can do his transforming work in me. If he can give a coward like Peter boldness, he can do it for me. Reflecting and meditating on those stories gives you a window into what God is able to do in your life. It also gives you a paradigm of what to ask of him. Meditate on the return of Christ. Imagine that coming day. Now, if you lived in New York City during 9-11, like Vanessa and I did, uh, or even if you didn't, if you were alive then, which I'm starting to realize that some of you were not alive then. <laughs> Everyone has a 9-11 story who was who was alive back then. It was a day that marked the American imagination and continues to this day. If that day of disaster and tragedy 
could leave such a formative mark on our society. How much more should the day of the Lord do that for us? When we imagine that day where he will scatter the darkness, that day where he would dry every tear, that day when all of the divisions that separate us and alienate us will be brought down and we will come together in love and celebration of the Lamb, that day warrants our meditative response. And it can mark us. Meditate on what the Lord can do in the lives of our neighbors and in our neighborhood. Jeremiah 29 gives us warrant to meditate in this way. Because a lot of times we're meditating on how impossible it is. But the scriptures give us warrant to meditate on what God could do in the lives of our neighbors. Can you imagine who they could become if the grace of God were to get a hold of them? Could you imagine what their lives would be like if God's love were to invade their souls? How would their gifts and talents be let loose for kingdom purposes? Because as you begin to meditate on what God can do in the lives of your neighbors, you then begin to get a sense of what it might look like for you to play a role in that story. If you lack vision for your neighbors, it will often undermine your neighbor love. You get that? If you lack vision for what your neighbors could become by the power of the gospel, you will often find yourself withdrawn from them because you have not nourished the hope of God's transforming work in their lives. And you have not considered the role you might play in that. Meditate on the specific answers to your prayers over the years. What has God done for you specifically? What has he brought you through? What kind of mountains has he brought you over? What kind of valleys has he seen you through? What kind of trials has he kept you through? When you begin to meditate on God's historic answers to your prayers, it actually nourishes a life of prayer and gives you confidence to continue to bring your prayers to him because he's a God who hears. He's a God who answers. He's a God who responds to the prayers and the dependence of his people. Meditate on where you would be without him versus where you are right now in him. Psalm 124 does this very thing. It says, if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, let Israel say, if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, and he begins to run through what that horrendous situation would be. But then he gives God the glory and says, but he has been at work on our behalf. Could you imagine where you would be without him? That is the sign. That, that, that's one of the ways that you begin to Nurture gratitude, y'all. The life of gratitude is nurtured by knowing and imagining and meditating on where you would be without him versus where you are with him. Meditate on the family to which you belong, the historic and global church. And you don't have to pretty it up. 
When you meditate on the family to which we belong, you know we will encounter plenty of failures in the history of the church, in the present of the church. And when we think on those failures, it should produce humility in us. It should kill self-righteousness and judgmentalism toward our neighbors because we can appreciate why it would be hard for them to consider even wanting to be a part of this. But also, as we encounter the beauty and the service and the witness of the church global and historic, it inspires us. It shows us the, the broader community of which we're a part, and it enlists us to be about the good work of the Lord. Meditate on who your neighbors really are as image bearers, glorious royal image bearers, and how you can bless the people around you. You know, you don't just bless people by accident most of the time. It takes time, planning, and reflection to think about how to be a blessing to your neighbors. But also, it takes meditative awareness to see this glorious image bearer for who they are. A lot of times we miss it and we judge by external appearances and we devalue people on something as silly as the clothing they wear or how clean they may be. That's sinful evil. And Chrysostom said this, he said, if you cannot find Christ in the beggar at the church door, you will not find him in the cup at the table. Because you ain't thinking straight. Meditate on the songs we sing in worship. There's a reason why some people just get up and sing, and some people see their singing translated into worship. And the difference is meditation. Meditation. When we worship together, what changes your mere singing and staring up at the people at front into worship is meditation. You know those times when a song just, mm, it gets with you? That's meditation. And the goal is to make all of our corporate worship meditation. To enter in. To not let our feelings dictate to us what worship's going to look like on this day but to allow the truth of God's word and the goodness of his promises and the faithfulness of our Lord to tell our emotions how to catch up. Meditate, and you will be able to worship God in any season for any reason, regardless of our stylistic or musical preferences or circumstances. These meditative subjects change us and form us, y'all. And these are just some of the things. This is just a little representative list. There's more. But when you find yourself meditating on these grand realities, it relativizes your problems and your anxieties and your fears. It puts them in their proper place. Your fears don't no longer look as big as your God. And if you find your fears outsizing your God, meditation is the way that you recover that healthy balance and that vision of what is true. Albert the Great said that the contemplation of the saints is fired by the love of the one contemplated. That is God. What is the motivation to meditate on the Lord? It's the good news that from all eternity, the Lord has been meditating on us. 
His divine mind has been occupied with doing us the most good, with bringing us the richest grace, with pouring out on us the, the grandest mercies. From all eternity, you have dwelt in the mind of the Lord as if you were the sole occupant of a boundless universe. He thinks of each of us as if there were only one of us. He's not capable of distraction. He knows you so well that he, he's aware when even a single hair falls from your head. And he says, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry thee. That is our God. The good news is that our God says things like this to his people. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. He has poured over the best ends and the best means for our lives. So practically what this means is you must declutter your life to make time for this practice with the same priority that you make time for anything else that's important in your life. You know they say it takes 30 days to form a habit. So I want to encourage you, set a place, set a time, practice it protect it, and be accountable. Your life depends on it. Your rootedness, your fruitfulness, your resilience depend on your life of meditation. If you do this, you will see the difference. Because here's the thing, and I need to say this to you, room full of brilliant, intellectually gifted people. You're not smart enough to get by without meditation. You're not gifted enough the most incredible musicians. You know, I went to music school. Most of you know that. I encountered a lot of incredible musicians, extraordinary prodigies, virtuosos, and not one of them could play their instrument unless they get it in tune first. All of the gifts and the talent in the world cannot help them if their instrument is not in tune. Meditation is what gets your life in tune with the Lord so that your gifts and your talents are put in their proper context and perspective so they're used for his glory. And that brings us to our final point, the key result of righteousness. The key practice is meditation. But what's the key result? Look at verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The key result of righteousness that is spurred by meditation is flourishing. Flourishing. The contemplative life grounds us in the face of the superficialities of our age. The rush, the hurry, the busyness, the flying around all day, every day, it keeps us from shallowness in our relationships, shallowness in our spirituality, and superficiality in our neighbor love. It keeps us from surface-level dealings with the matters of our lives. The psalmist tells us that the key result of righteousness is that we sink roots into the very life of God, and we bear fruit in our life in the world. The hope is that we'll be present and awake right now rather than sleepwalking through life, which is so much of what happens when you don't meditate. Your, your, your mind is already down the road, and you're missing what's happening right in front of you. You're not present. 
You're not taking it in. And here's the thing. It's not really an issue of whether or not you will meditate. Everybody meditates. Everybody meditates all day, every day. It's a question of the subject of your meditation. Will you meditate on your worries, your anxieties, your problems, how you're going to get your career to where you wanted to go, what you're going to do with these kids? These meditative subjects do not bring life. They extract life. They extract vitality. The felt distance of God is often the result of the fact that we have trivialized most of life by choosing to avoid meditation. And I've used this quote before, but it is so good. And I want to bring it back to your memory. An Orthodox theologian named Alexander Schmemann. He said this, he said, the religion of this fallen world cannot heal or redeem it. For it has accepted the reduction of God to an area called sacred, spiritual, or supernatural. As opposed to the world as profane. Here it is. It has accepted the all-embracing secularism which attempts to steal the world away from God. Do not let the world be stolen away from God in your minds. Remember, this creation is brimming with his presence. Meditation is what restores the world back to God in our thinking, our seeing, our feeling, and our hearing. When we consistently practice meditation, we also experience the reordering of our loves, which is central to our formation and our motivation. Put another way, our loves are central to who we are, who we're becoming, and the character of our longings and desires. If you want to get motivation right, you must get love right. And meditation is what helps us to get love right. Last thing I'll say is that meditation results in actual life change because it shapes and energizes our practices and habits. The life of faith does not merely consist in the cognitive grasp of theological information or spiritual insights, but in practices and habits. We don't take an insight-based model of discipleship here at Grace Mosaic. We take a practices-based model. Our practices and our habits tell the truth about what's going on in our inner life. Meditation and rehabituation go hand in hand. You see? Many of the most important spiritual insights actually do not come apart from the practices. But ultimately, here's the deal. The promise held out in this text, Psalm 1, is most fully realized in our union with the blessed and righteous man, Jesus Christ. Do you see that this song is most faithfully found on the lips of the Lord Jesus himself? The good news is that in his earthly life, Jesus did not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. His delight was in the law of the Lord, and he meditated on that law day and night. He was like a tree planted by streams of water, and that is why his sacrifice on the tree had such great effect for our salvation. 
We are the fruit of his righteous life and in his work of love, in his work of redemption, in his work of liberation and healing, he prospered. And that's why we're in this church today. We would have been like chaff. We would have not been able to stand the judgment. We could never enter the congregation of the righteous if it had not been embodied this song by the meditative life of righteousness depicted in the life of the Lord Jesus. It's my prayer that as you take up this practice of meditation, that you will see God's world and God's word is absolutely brimming with his glory and his gospel. And in seeing, I pray that you are revived, renewed, reoriented, and refreshed. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.